This is FutureSight, a show from Capgemini Invent, where we explore emerging technology trends and new ways for you to adapt and grow your business. I'm Gary Bemaya, the Chief Technology and Innovation Officer of Capgemini Invent and the co-host of FutureSight. This episode is truly on the frontier of tech and innovation. We're going to be talking about quantum-centric data-driven R&D. Joining us to explore this topic is Richard Padbury, the global lead of GSI and consulting partnerships at IBM Quantum, and our very own Sam Genway, Emerging Technologies Lead at Hybrid Intelligence and Head of Industries at the Capgemini Quantum Lab. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Kerry. Really happy to be here. Thanks, Kerry. Delighted to be part of it. I'm happy you guys are here as well. Richard, let's start with you. Could you give us a bit more detail on your role and how you got here? So I, I come from an academic background myself. Um, so I have a PhD in material science from uh, North Carolina State University. I also have a, a bachelor's degree in physics from the University of Manchester. While I've always been very, very passionate about science and technology, I think what drives me even more is building relationships and partnerships. And so after the, over the last uh, five or six years, I've been working in roles such as consulting and now alliances, uh, which has allowed me to to focus on that passion of building relationships with with partners and seeing what we can do together in new and exciting ways. So as the global lead for our GSI and consulting partners, it's it's my role to bridge IBM and our partners uh, together so that we can explore really exciting opportunities like quantum computing. So the topic today is, you know, two of my most favorite topics, quantum computing <laughs> and chemistry. So I'm, I'm really excited to be here. Thank you. No, we're glad to have you here. And Sam, you've got a PhD as well and a research background in quantum theory. Could you tell us how you made the jump from academia to leading commercial projects at the forefront of AI and R&D transformation? Yes, great question. So uh, my background's really pretty uh, scarily similar to Richard's. Actually, I was I was a natural scientist uh, uh, just down the road from where I, or where we, where we're, at least I am based today uh, in the UK um, in Cambridge, and then I was at Imperial College as a theoretical physicist and. Um, you know, I was fascinated by all of the different things that you could get involved in in academic research. And I, I if anything, my, 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 my challenge was sort of what to get involved in and what not to get involved in. And the problem is that that doesn't work so well in an academic context because you really have to become a deep specialist in one area. And I loved working with different people, uh, engaging on new challenges and actually figuring out how we could do creative things together. Um, and fortunately, in my current role, that's exactly what I get to do a huge amount of. So I get to sort of spend a big part of my time um, facing, um, outwardly facing, having conversations with our, our clients about some of their exciting challenges and a good part of my time focusing on the internal R&D that we invest in our, our, ourselves. And that, that balance is just such a, such a happy place to be for me. So coming back to you know, what we were saying, we're definitely talking to the right people over here. You both have been involved in the quantum technology space for a long time. Um, and we have spoken about quantum computing before on this show. But for those who aren't aware, can we very quickly get an understanding from your own viewpoints. What do we mean by quantum computing? Um, what is its differences to traditional computing? And what's the quantum advantage? 
most conversations about quantum mechanics typically start with just how weird and and strange it is, right? Um, so things can be dead or alive at the same time. Uh, just thinking about Schrodinger's uh, famous uh, thought experiment. You know, quantum particles appear to be correlated with each other over very large distances. But quantum mechanics is it's very w- real and. The exciting thing is that we can now use these fundamental laws to process information in a completely new way. And I think what I would I would say to our listeners is, you know, they might be wondering, will will quantum computers replace classical computers? And I would say no. And what we'll learn in this episode is is actually how quantum computers and classical pu- computers work very well together. But is is it a fundamentally new way of computing? And absolutely, yes, it it is. And so let's let's explore some of those differences. So unlike each bit on a classical computing system, which can only be one of two states, one or zero at any given time, quantum bits, or we call them qubits, can be uh, a complex linear combination, uh, a, a mixture of one and zero. And this allows us to explore compute spaces that are out of reach of, of classical computers, uh, which gives quantum computers the, the potential to solve extremely challenging problems. And then, you know, finally, on your question about quantum advantage, so, so the official definition of quantum advantage at IBM Quantum is when a computational task of business or scientific relevance can be performed more efficiently, maybe more cost-effectively or accurately, using a quantum computer than with classical uh, computations alone. So we've made great progress over the last three years, but it is important to to keep in mind that we're not quite at this goal yet. I think that's a a really key uh, part of what you just said, Richard, there about it actually being a a problem which is sort of relevant scientifically or relevant in 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 a business context, because I guess we have reached the point where we've seen examples uh, of um, quantum computers doing things which are which which are extremely difficult to simulate classically and actually uh, we know that sort of as you know, as, uh, I think on the IBM roadmap for, for, for how your hardware will, de- will develop, we, we're quite quickly going to be very deep into that sort of regime, where it's just not going to be possible for any any classical computer, any supercomputer ever to kind of simulate what that quantum computer is doing. But the challenge is really using it for some for some benefit, whether it's you know, sp- accelerating something, get, getting calculations to higher accuracy, potentially maybe even doing something in a more energy efficient way, which I think is another interesting uh, direction here. But that that feels like that's absolutely the um, the interesting challenge that we face. Uh, you know, alongside the, the the really rapid hardware progress, which is uh, which is underway at the moment. If we were to go back in time by around ten years, I remember that most quantum computing conversations were in isolation. They were they were their own thing. But today, increasingly, we find that the conversation has got you know bits and pieces of artificial intelligence involved in it. So, how have you guys seen the relationship between quantum computing and artificial intelligence evolve? Let's say in the past few years, and where do you think it's going? It's a good question. So, I think there are multiple directions. Actually, I think I think there are multiple pieces to that in terms of how artificial intelli- intelligence and quantum computing. Um, 
sit together. And I guess one area we really can't ignore is the area of, of, of quantum machine learning itself. And that's perhaps the area which most people will uh, initially jump to when, when thinking about this. And, and, and that itself has kind of many, um, many subcategories within it, but essentially using a quantum computer um, to, 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 to support the, the, the performing of machine learning tasks in, in, in one way or another. And there are, there is a lot of research going on in this area at the moment. We've known for for some time, there are there, there are some great theoretical results that suggest that subroutines within machine learning uh, approaches could potentially be hugely accelerated. But we're also seeing examples, perhaps at the more heuristic level, where we're seeing that actually some of these quantum machine learning models, which can be explored at small scales today, are actually very expressive um, and, and can, can create models which seem to be sort of able to generalize very well um, for the number of parameters that they have, which is also another another really exciting area. Uh, for me in particular, and maybe this is something that we'll, we'll, we'll come back to later in the discussion when we uh, we dig into a bit more detail about chemistry and materials, but I think another exciting area is um, machine learning, which involves quantum data itself. So when we're talking about things which either um, may have come from um, from quantum sensors, so so devices themselves, which use the principles of of, of quantum physics in terms of how they how they operate, or um, a quantum description of a real problem like 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 chemistry and materials. So that sort of QML space is 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 really exciting, really rich, and I think R and D in that space is still really you know, research is very much ongoing. Um, but I think it's not the only space, and I, I, I think R Richard uh, probably also have have some some comments to make about how um, AI machine learning can actually support um, support some of the challenges in, in in quantum computing itself. Also, can fit in in terms of a wider workflow in terms of how we use a quantum computer, where you know where where, where the the key part of the, the calculation will be on a on a quantum device, but actually that will be embedded in something much bigger that may may involve um, may involve quite a bit of machine learning as well. Uh, absolutely, and I and I agree with with, with Kerry what you said um, at the start. You know, I think in the beginning these these new technologies do they do tend to develop in in isolation. So there's usually a handful of of key researchers around the world that really drive these fundamental developments. But then there the there are these these inflection points where we we learn more, and you know in the case of quantum computing, we're able to develop these systems and and get them online and get a wider range of people interacting with them and, and learning how does quantum computing work. And so that was one of the um you know one of the reasons why we created the IBM Quantum Network back in 2016 is because, you know, right from the start, it's been our goal to get quantum computing in the hands of many different people as we possibly can. And so when we're developing these new technologies, I think it's it's really exciting when we can actually work with other domain experts to learn from each other and actually see how how do these different tools and approaches work together uh, to solve a problem. So so for me, the most exciting prospect is more tools in the toolbox that that allow us to approach problems from from different perspectives. Yeah, and you IBM has especially been kind of like leading a lot of this because you guys were the first to actually come out and start giving. Um, supercomputing to a number of of people, you know, the, the whole concept of 
high performance computing and supercomputing. You can find a lot of its origins from IBM. So since you guys are already immersed in that space, for me today, the question becomes, well, twofold. On one side, we're seeing this um, massaging of nuances between artificial intelligence and quantum computing. But on the other side, we're also seeing just within the quantum computing space as well, we are now moving into the realm of quantum-centric supercomputing. So could Richard, since you're here, could you kind of explain what is quantum-centric supercomputing and how is it different from traditional supercomputing? Absolutely, yeah. So if, if you've seen our IBM Quantum roadmap, the next phase in, in our development involves all of the, the the hardware and the software around quantum-centric supercomputing. So, so what it is, is it's, it's really a range of technologies that connect quantum computing to traditional supercomputing. And we want the two to work well together so that we can leverage both quantum and classical workflows to solve problems. And, and so, as I say, this is the next stage in the IBM Quantum no roadmap to, to achieve exactly this. So we have plans to develop a you know a four thousand plus qubit processor built with multiple clusters of modularly scaled processors, uh, you know by by twenty twenty five, and so this means that we we have to make new advances to our quantum processors, the middleware that orchestrate the classical and quantum workflows, um, but of course the the software that algorithm developers can use to build models. We, we need to make advances on, on these three key areas uh, in order to realize the potential of, of quantum-centric supercomputing. And so for us, the idea is that anyone trying to solve a complex problem can utilize quantum technology without knowing the details of, of quantum physics, just like they can utilize classical resources today without knowing the specifications of the, the CPU or the GPU that they're using. And so we're, you know, we're very excited to explore how these tie into Capgemini's quantum-centric data-driven R&D and, and how we can work together to, to drive these exciting technologies forward. And Sam, you're someone who's actually the person who actually builds a lot of these algorithms. So based on what Richard's just saying in terms of this kind of new user experience, how is that going to change the kind of work that you're currently doing? Yes, it's a, good, it's a really good question because I think a lot of people sort of... Uh, assume that that when they think of quantum computing it's a sort of a, it's a it's a new bit of hardware which is going to work in isolation and we're going to switch things across to that and it will be kind of just you know kind of version 2.0 will be the, the 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 quantum computing version and actually i think across the board that's not the case every everything that that richard has just dis described actually really encompasses all of the kind of future workflows which um uh, which are going to leverage quantum hardware they're they're all going to require this sort of intimate uh, coupling between between classical and and, and quantum uh, compute resources together so this sort of layer of uh, if you like middleware that sort of sits above the hardware is going to be absolutely critical for everything we do now it's going to be can be completely relevant for the things that 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 are maybe close to the topic of uh, conversation today around chemistry and materials and R and D because these naturally involve parts of those calculations which will have to be done on on conventional hardware um, because that's where it's most efficient that's where it makes most sense to do it 
but also focusing on kind of the, the the core part where there is a benefit to the kinds of algorithms which quantum computers can can, can operate being being done um, on, on a quantum computer. So while today this is a sort of in in the research stages, this, this is still being built out, and we're still um, we're still sort of mapping out how how that looks, and there there's even flexibility. There are you know we touched on quantum machine learning earlier. Um, maybe in some situations it may, may be explicitly the case that we want to use a quantum machine learning algorithm um, versus a classical machine learning algorithm. But actually, that sort of close connectivity between between the hardware along a, along a pipeline is is going to be absolutely um, absolutely core everywhere. And I think it it is interesting how sort of Richard describes it as a as a sort of building the tools because I think there are parallels. If you look at what's happened in the space of AI, for example, we saw that as as, as neural networks gained, gained prominence in the very early days of research, people were actually paralyzing uh, training themselves. People were writing CUDA to, to, to harness GPUs. And of course, today, nobody does that. If you, if you go and pick up, uh, pick up a library like TensorFlow or PyTorch, you are really not needing to write, write the, 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 the low-level code, which sort of describes how parts of the calculation are going to be farmed out to the GPU that, that, that leverages the, the great deal of parallelization there and then brought back to, to, to CPU uh, you know, as, as part of the sort of back-propagation steps, the, the way in which we train these neural networks. And, and obviously, this is, a sort of, um, this is to some extent a much easier challenge than the, the integration of, of a whole new kind of com compute, computational device like a quantum process processing unit with uh, with classical hardware but I think we'll reach the point where it really can be seen by um, by, by those end users as as another tool in the toolbox. In the same way that we know that if we're if, if we're going to look at contemporary AI, we're going we're going to need some some GPU resource in there. So that that's how I see that future mapped out. And I think it's really exciting that uh, that, that IBM is is working on these things now because yes, they're going to form a part of the future of all of those those workflows. Um, but but we need to be we need to be tackling them now to be able to go on that journey. So let's let's get more specific then, right? Um, both of you have worked in the field of chemistry and material science. So how does the concept of quantum centric R and D fit into the field of chemistry and material science research today? Maybe I can start, and uh, and Richard, you 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 can sort of chip in with with your your rich experience in this in this space as well. My. My, my view is that we should actually take them separately first. So maybe actually we should start, since we're talking about quantum computing, with the kind of why is quantum centric in there? And I, and I think the answer to that is that some problems are just fundamentally quantum mechanical in nature. Um, if we want to understand how, how chemical reactions uh, happen, if we want to understand the properties of battery materials, catalysts, in fact, even if we want to understand the the, the color of, uh, of of compounds which are used in dyes, th these are all actually quantum mechanical things. And it turns out that quantum computers are extremely good um, at, at simulating other other quantum systems. In fact, that goes right back to the early origins of of quantum computers. An idea, Richard Feynman made st statements along along these lines that if you want to study a quantum problem. The kind of computer you need should be should should be quantum in nature as well. So there's this huge advantage from using a using a quantum computer for these kinds of problems um, if we really want to be able to simulate them exactly because they are 
exponentially difficult to study on on a, on a classical computer, but they're quite natural to study on a on a quantum computer. So that means you know on on, on your HPC or on your on, on on using your cloud compute, if you want to study, let's say you want to study. 40 electrons in a material, you want to study 41, well, you need a computer that's twice as big, roughly speaking. And if you want to go to 42 electrons, well, you better double it again. And you can see this doesn't, doesn't scale very well. So, so quantum really unlocks, um, that, that, that part of the problem. And I think, uh, you know, both, both Richard and I will have done a, a lot of work, um, on, on, on using quantum, quantum simulation techniques, uh, in this space to get that advantage. So that's piece number one. That's the first part. Second ingredient is, of course, the data-driven side. And I guess expert scientists actually use data all the time, even without thinking about it. Much of the sort of intuition that a chemist brings to, brings to a problem that might say, okay, this reaction will happen or it won't, or it will happen more quickly um, that, than this other one that's related, come, it, is really anchored in experience. It's anchored in running experiments. So actually the idea of using data to support um, scientific progress is absolutely fundamental to that field. And more recently, we know that We've worked extensively in bringing machine learning into those R&D topics, whether that's in areas like drug discovery, where you learn from example that molecules that look like this, that have these features, are, are more likely to be more active or more likely to have favorable um, favorable properties. And this, this is actually has quite a long history, this idea of looking at examples and, um, uh, you know, and, and the data that you have on them in order to make predictions about things that you haven't measured uh, in the lab. And that really applies across the board. I mentioned drug discovery. It could be talking about carbon capture. I, I could be talking about other classes of, um, of materials. So when we talk about quantum-centric data-driven R&D, we're really trying to draw on the best from both worlds. We're, we're, we're acknowledging that there are some properties of matter, of chemistry, of materials, where the quantum description is fundamentally the right one. This is the natural way to describe a problem if you want to explain, if you want to make meaningful predictions with it. But combine that with the fact that we know we can create really powerful models for, for, for with, with data. And in certain situations, we think this can be incredibly powerful to create better performing models that generalize with smaller data sets. That means you get more value from the experimental data that, that you've gathered. Richard, anything you want to add on to what uh, Sam just said? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot there that that Sam's described that really resonates with me. You know, particularly so. So I I come from an experimental background. So my 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 PhD go going back uh, uh, many years now. Um, I, I was an experimentalist. So I was in the lab making samples, characterizing them, trying to understand. Um, you know the structures of these things that I made using experimental methods, and so as as Sam mentioned, as a material scientist, we bring a lot of domain knowledge and intuition, but we are also used to working with data. the The, the challenge is that it in, in material science, in in particularly, and probably you know in in drug discovery and chemistry, the cost to acquire that data is very expensive because of the nature of the experiments we have to perform to, to get that data. Um, so being able to do more with less is in, incredibly important. Um, but I, I think another thing that comes to mind is, you know, discussing the challenges of maybe a simulation only or a 
data-driven only approach for material science problems. You know, again, data-driven approaches are are generally cheaper. You you can build machine learning algorithms on on a simple laptop and um, analyze data, but typically they require sufficient training data. Uh, to get the most out of, you know, to actually train a, a, a decent model to help us uh, understand what we're working with. But as we've as we've discussed, that that can be uh, very expensive to acquire. Um, but if we look at simulation methods, they tend to be more expensive in terms of compute cost. Um, but they allow us to acquire new data and to nest and test scenarios that we can't see in our physical experiment. So I think that. That for me very much ties into into what Sam was describing, where you know, with with some of these emerging quantum computing methods, you know, the, these methods maybe fit a particular part of the problem really well, and so it makes sense to use a quantum approach for for that specific part of the problem, and it helps us to acquire new data that we can leverage with with these other technologies. Um, so again, I, I think. There's an exciting opportunity to combine different tools, whether it's quantum computing, you know, traditional simulation techniques, or, or data-driven uh, methodologies. These really are complementary techniques, and so the strengths of one helps us to overcome the limitations of the other, and vice versa. Um, so, I, I think for for me, moving forward, it's all about getting getting different different tools and technologies together to, to approach problems from, from different perspectives. Um, yeah. So both of you seem um, very optimistic. Uh, are there specific examples where concentric R&D has been used to achieve uh, breakthroughs in the fields of chemistry or material science either way? So I think we, we, we've had some really exciting um, results from some recent work that we did in the drug discovery space. Um, uh, we had a, a, a collaboration actually with one of the uh, large pharmaceutical companies in the UK with, with, with GSK. And I, I want to say up front, I, I don't want to claim, we've already discussed about the fact that there's no there's no quantum advantage yet. So we, we, we haven't done something with a quantum computer that you couldn't do any other way. But in terms of developing out those techniques, um, we've seen some really, really exciting results. So one of the things that we have been looking at is making um, predictions of the reactivities of, of covalent drugs. So these are, these are drugs that form strong bonds with, with, with targets in, in, in the body um, in order to treat disease in some way. Um, and it turns out that um, the, these kinds of interactions are very difficult to study without, without either experimental techniques or some degree of, uh, of quantum simulation. But just as Richard was sort of describing that there are um, many, different, um, many different tools that potentially need to come together to solve a problem, that, that's exactly the case for a problem like this because we cannot simulate absolutely everything in this in this case. So, you know, protein molecules are very very big, um, extremely large computational resource resource to do that. But machine learning can be very very uh, very very helpful in 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 this direction. So what we can do is we can look at the space of um, experimental data where we have different molecules and we have recorded how reactive they are. Um, and we can use that to train models using this quantum mechanical description 
which we we can we can extract from a quantum computer. And actually, one of the um, fantastic results for me was when we first saw that actually this, this approach of combining a quantum uh, calculation and combining features that go into a model, um, which could be calculated on a quantum device, are actually able to make some predictions uh, of, of the um, of the relevant chemistry. And not not only do we do we make these predictions, we see that actually we can kind of map out the space of different molecules uh, and get inside insights into which molecules are similar, which go beyond the, the conventional classical descriptions of molecules, which, uh, which you otherwise might, might use. So that's, that's been an incredibly exciting piece of work in this space. You know, these exciting developments that are helping us to understand these very complicated chemistries better. I, you know, I think this will move, move the, the field forward. And we, I mean, we should talk about how how long it currently takes to to develop these new chemistries and bring them to market. You know, this is a a decades long endeavor, and the the opportunity is to use quantum computing again to help us approach uh, problems from a different perspective that that helps us to improve the simulation of these chemistries. You know, maybe help us to enhance the accuracy of a calculation. Uh, which in turn it could help us to speed up and, and de-risk the creation of, of truly new materials or drugs or chemicals uh, before they're tested and, and brought to the marketplace. Um, so I'm really excited again to see to see how these new tools help us in in that respect as well. Yeah, because that was something that I was thinking about. You know, these things are not cheap. If you're going to be jumping into Working with quantum computers and everything else, you need the people to do it. You need the expertise, and and you need to find a tangible use case. Um, and Richard, since you you know work with different companies, um, I know some of the work that we're doing within Capgemini, but I think you have a much more holistic view. What's the real motivation for companies to actually jump into it? Is it just because that they want to be able to reduce existing cost pipelines, or is it because they're getting access to a whole new form of novelty? That they would not be able to access before. Yeah, I think that's a it's a great a great question. I think I think there's huge potential now to get smart on on quantum computing. I I think now is the time to to get involved. So I think one of the key drivers is to say, look, this is a a new evolving technology, and as it evolves, now is the time to to learn about what it is and and what it can potentially do for an organization or an individual as the technology progresses so th there's a component here of of workforce development so helping um helping to upskill the existing workforce to understand uh quantum computing and and how it may be relevant to a business and then the you know then of course there's the the aspect that we've been talking about which is which is solving real real problems and there's many many challenges out there that are increasing in complexity and again i think we're going to have to have as many as many tools in the toolbox uh, as we possibly can uh, to to solve some of these 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 difficult problems um so I, i'm pretty i'm i'm pretty optimistic about new technologies because again i i just as i mentioned i think we have some some pretty difficult challenges ahead of us the the these challenges are becoming more and more complicated and so you know we need different approaches and ways of of solving those problems 
I think it was interesting the the sort of comment about novelty because I think actually what one of the things that we do focus on a lot is sort of uh, anchoring ourselves to particular problems and saying you know, can can I simulate this with a with a quantum computer is it, is is this a particular problem that makes sense in in my industry in my industry and that that's often sort of anchored to the idea of sort of saving on costs or cutting down these timescales and sort of as you say Richard sort of bringing down uh, timescales that that are sort of 10 years or more in R&D is obviously hugely impactful. So it makes a lot of sense to, to kind of go on this journey. Um, but I think often it, we, we overlook this, this idea that actually we we can create something that, that we wouldn't have created any other way. So it's not just a sort of a, a cost saving or a time saving. The product that we end up with uh, will be different because we have really gone on a different exploration, which has been enabled um, by these new tools. And I think that's that's sort of exciting on the level of an individual project. I wonder if over over a longer period of time, one of the things that will be even more exciting is the sort of decision making about what that R&D process looks like being transformed. So, you know, if it's chemistry, we can go after a different area of chemistry. Maybe, I don't know, we look at, you know, for example, compounds with um, um, with, with metal atoms in them, which are difficult to simulate today, but, but actually that area of chemical space is opened up and we, we take completely different directions because of the, uh, the, the you know, the, the enabling factor of, of an emerging technology like quantum computing. And that's when it will really have. So, what could we actually build with that? So, you mentioned right now that you know you can look at metal and metal atoms in a very different way. Well, number one, who's actually using this stuff today, right? If you tell me that it's reducing the the R and D pipeline or, or, or timeline by a certain amount, how much is that amount like? And and secondly, what is it that we're going to be able to create that we're not able to use to make today? So that's a really good. That's a really good question. Maybe I can go first, and Richard chipping because I I think from my point of view that that is one of the challenges is going from the high level white paper statements about cutting you know two three years off R and D, and really mapping that to, to to the detail in terms of what it means for sort of which hurdles in the R and D process are we actually going to sort of remove um, from scientists from researchers from from the the. The, those who manage a portfolio of R and D within 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 an organisation, um, and I think there there are two parts to it. So we we know that there are some problems if we if we focus in on 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 chemistry and materials. There are some particular problems which are often referred to as, as strongly correlated problems. And this is where we have these 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 systems with many electrons. And they all interact with each other, and it leads to emergent phenomena that are just really, really difficult to capture um, with classical techniques. So that whole class of problems are things that we just know already. Um, if, if we can tackle those um, with a quantum computer, then it, it will unlock things that we cannot we cannot capture um, with the sorts of uh, approximations that we have to make on on, on classical computers. And, and and these sorts of things appear in many situations. So there there, there are many areas. Obviously, there are some of these in in, in drug discovery, but also catalysis in, in in materials for carbon capture and storage, uh, and so on. The list the list goes on. But the second part is kind of what I was hinting at as to whether, well, maybe we pursue 
uh, research directions, which are kind of we wouldn't have pursued because we couldn't we, we wouldn't think of studying that problem because it's just too hard to tackle um, computationally. And that's where I think it's going to get get really exciting. I don't know, Richard, if you do you have any thoughts? What what, what are some of your favourite areas where you think there could be? Um, you know, given your materials background, do, they, do you have a different view or? Uh, are there particular areas you're you're excited about there? Yeah, I think I think there's 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 so many exciting areas to to explore. I think for me again, I sort of think back to back to my experience in 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 the labs. You know, I I I sometimes you know feel that our you know our our, our development pathway can be can be quite linear you know you you identify something you explore it you characterize it you understand it you know our, our goal in an r&d workflow is to then move that idea forward you know down down to ever more in increasing scales in order to get it into a fully a fully finished product and you know every step and stage we take the the risk and the complexity involved in Going from that initial idea to a fully finished, furnished product is, you know, very, very complicated. Um, I think for me, leveraging quantum computing at the start of a of a project where I can use this new way of processing information to help me understand, you know, the material or the chemistry that I'm I'm exploring, you know, if we can make progress there. Then we can de-risk the rest of that of that process and that pipeline. Um, so for me, that that's a really exciting opportunity to discover and develop materials, chemistries, or drugs that I can be confident to forward to the to the next stage of of development. You know, I've I've always liked to say as well. There's lots of the material and chemistry space that we have not even discovered yet, and I think that ties into what you're saying, Sam. There's there's certain areas that perhaps we we've not been yet because it's you know we we either haven't stumbled a, a, a across it or it's just too complicated to get there and so i think this new way of of computing and simulating materials could could unlock new spaces for us to explore um new materials for some of these emerging challenges you know carbon capture and storage or or battery technology catalysis you know, all of these very important areas. Um, I think the hope is that we'll be able to find and identify new chemistries that can make, you know, batteries more efficient, more powerful uh, for some of these emerging applications like, you know, electric vehicles. But of course, there's also many, many materials that exist today that we we just might not have, have tested before, uh, just because we never thought you know, maybe this this specific material we're using it in this very specific application, but maybe it has these amazing properties that we've just not been able to explore before. Uh, so I think there's exciting opportunities to also revisit many of the materials that we uh, that we use today in industry and and maybe use them in new in in new ways. So, what percentage right now of material manufacturers and drug manufacturers? Uh, seriously investing and in exploring the application of content-centric R&D? So we, we work with, uh, there's a number of, of organizations uh, that, that we work with. Uh, and, you know, for example, we've worked with Boeing on designing corrosion-resistant materials. Um, we've worked with 
ExxonMobil, Mitsubishi Chemical on on identifying uh, new ma- new materials and, and chemicals for for processes that are important to their organizations. So we, we are starting to see uh, a larger number of organizations thinking about quantum computing and you know learning how how it works and where it could apply to their businesses. So today, our, our quantum network actually we we have just over 200 members in our IBM quantum network, uh, which includes Capgemini. Uh, but these are organizations that represent academia, government, and and industry all around the world who want to get involved and, and learn more about quantum computing. So, uh, you know, it's really exciting to see more and more organizations get getting involved. Yeah, I think if you pick an industry and 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 sort of look to the to some of the biggest names, you you generally find. I mean, I say this whether they've worked worked with us or or, or others that that most of the main players have 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 really done some exploration in, in into quantum technologies and and to sort of start to think about at the very least start to think about what it what it means for their industry and for their organisation and in, and in many cases actually really played. Um, Quite a role in um, in actually furthering the thinking about uh, about how how that te- how the technology will impact their industry. So actually shaping the narrative around around what quantum computing means, for example, um, in in life sciences or the energy space or or, or somewhere else, which is really exciting to see. Actually, that um, it, it's not just coming from. I, I think it's really sort of two sides coming together. There are organisations working on the, on the on the technology and the hardware, um, but the conversation is also being shaped by the uh, by by the needs of different industries, and as they're getting involved in the conversation, that is that is really feeding into you know, kind of where, where the narrative is going in terms of where where the where where this novel hardware might might find an impact. So it sounds like it's starting to kind of climb out of the realm of theoretical or academic ivory tower kind of conversations, and is now getting more and more enterprise ready. Um, it also sounds like something which um, requires investment. But is investment the only challenge? Like, what are the challenges that people who want to use quantum-centric data-driven R&D, what are they facing today when they want to jump into this space? Is it just the cost or are there other variables as well which need to be taken into consideration? So I think Richard mentioned skills earlier, and I think I think that's a big one because I think at the moment uh, – there is not a there's not a sort of a completely off the shelf solution to a, to, a, to to a particular business problem um, using quantum computing. Uh, it will involve engaging with the technology, and it will generally involve, I, I, in my experience, a, a collaboration between uh, groups of people with different complementary skill sets that sort of understand the technology space. So if you like understand the sort of potential solution space and those who really understand the problem space and understand their, their domain. And I imagine that that's, that's going to be the case as we sort of uh, continue to move uh, and quantum continues to, to to emerge, as you say, from the sort of academic ivory tower, sort of theoretical papers to to, to focus on real world problems. But of, of course, to do this, you you need people who can speak each other's language enough to have those meaningful conversations, and that means that there is um, there is some upskilling needed. I, I think in terms of uh, in terms of the quantum side, that that does need to be brought into a 
into, into organizations. And I see um, several organizations who, who are doing that, essentially bring, bringing in more, more, more quantum skills. And it also requires um, uh, those of us on the, on the technology side to, to, to be able to engage across different domains and really have meaningful, meaningful conversations about the, uh, about the challenges. So skills is my number one thing on that list, Carrie, I guess, to, to add to, add to the cost. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, from, from my side, as, as we've discussed, um, you know, good news today is that the barrier to explore quantum computing is low, uh, whether you're an individual, uh, or an organization, there's, you know, obviously there's quantum computers available on the cloud that, that anyone can use today. Um, so, so Kerry, if you wanted to, uh, I'm sure Sam could, could make, uh, access to our systems available and, and you could be, uh, programming a quantum computer this afternoon. Um, and there's plenty of education to help organizations and communities. Uh, understand the technology even at no cost but we're still in we're still in the early stages of of developing this technology and so i, I think for me you know the biggest challenge or, or risk even is making sure we're not um exploring quantum computing in a vacuum and so we need diversity and collaboration across disciplines to to really be successful and and as i mentioned previously that's been a key focus at ibm quantum from from day 1 um so again, since 2016, when we created the the quantum network, uh, today we've got over 450,000 users on the platform. Um, we've supported over 4 million learners around the world. Again, this is all about building skills in quantum. And we've worked with over 250 organizations around the world, um, in, including Capgemini, which, you know, which is, which is really exciting. Um, and, and I would say for organizations and in individuals specifically interested in research, um, you know, the, the first step is to map, map the problems that they're trying to solve to what a quantum computer can potentially achieve today. And, and of course, scientists like my colleagues at IBM and at Capgemini can come in and help here and help domain experts um, begin their research and use cases. And Hopefully, in the not too distant future, we'll we'll have applications uh, that that deliver a quantum advantage. How far do you think we are from this? Because I think that's the main thing, right? The the day that we have that wow kind of effect in which we see something which was completely not possible before, that's when everyone's just going to be. It's going to have the generative AI effect. You know, um, AI has been going on for th how many decades now? Four decades or something like that. Until right up to last year, if you went to the average person on the street and you know asked them a, a question about artificial intelligence, I think the probability of actually getting a um, a very nuanced answer for them would be would be quite low. But ever since ChatGPT has come out, I mean, you just see the the usability curves and it, it's off the it's off the charts. You've never seen something like that before, and now um, everyone's kind of like become an expert in LLMs and um, generative AI models. <laughs> so, when do you think that moment's going to actually happen for for quantum? Right? When when, when is it? How how far do you think we are from it? So that's that's a, it's a, a good question. Um... Tricky one to answer, Sam. I, you know, again, I'm picking on you. I, I don't know if you if you have any thoughts there. I, you know, I, I think for me, when we're when we're really talking about new technology, it's you know, it we we don't necessarily have that that glass ball where we can 
where we can you know predict the future and and you know see see the endpoint you know as as we're developing these things i think quite often we start out um in the early stages of of developments and you know perhaps the vision that we have for these technologies aren't necessarily you know the the thing that we have at the end if 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 that makes sense i think um i think there's many more developments ahead of us i think things can change uh, very quickly in this field um but i i am i am excited that we do have you know many people looking at this problem from from different angles and perspectives so I'm I'm confident in the not too distant future that we will we will be seeing you know real real advantage from leveraging these these new technologies. So a bit bit of a round roundabout answer to to your question, but I think may, maybe the short answer is we're, we we don't know, uh, but we're working hard to to obviously uh, move the technology forward. So I, I was going to say I don't think you're going to get a um, a really concrete date from either of us. I, I think it, you know, the the rapid progress is is really exciting, and I think it's most likely that the that some of the really killer future applications are going to be things that we haven't thought of yet. Right, this, this happens all the time with emerging technology that we we focus on things where we can see a path forward, and those are really really exciting. But there are moments where you know there's a sort of there's a light switch flipped, and oh okay this 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 is where it's going to have a going to have a major major impact that we didn't foresee so i i i do sort of re- retain that position that probably we haven't necessarily sort of mapped out the most uh, what will be the most exciting application you know kind of a, a decade or two down the line but in terms of the sort of when are we going to get there maybe there are a few things that we we, we can say that sort of divides up the sorts of problems just just so it's a, we, we can be a little bit helpful because it's worth saying that there are there are there are known algorithms where where it's clear if we if we get to get get to um, hardware that, that has a particular scale has a particular um, performance we, we we will be able to we will be able to do things that we, we we simply cannot do with with conventional hardware. In some cases, this is because they're the the advantage is exponential. In some cases, the the, the so called advantage in terms of the complexity is is a little bit weaker. Um, Loosely speaking, that means the quantum algorithm is better than the classical equivalent, but it's not so much better um, that we hit it as soon. So we have to push to bigger, bigger problem sizes to get that. And I think there are a good number of those down the line. Um, obviously, um, chemistry and material simulation is, is one of the exciting ones that we, you know, we, we kind of know really confidently that, um, um, that there's going to be some impact there when you get to scales big enough. But there's another class of, um, of, of problems which are sort of heuristic in nature. And that means really we have to, we have to explore the hardware as it scales, um, to, to, to really see how well it works and, 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 uh, and what kind of advantage we get. And I think I can, well, imagine that that some of those will really um, uh, those will really pay off, and we'll, we'll see as the you know as as IBM's roadmap develops, and we see increasing uh, in, increasingly performant hardware, um, and, and people start to play around with with, with some of these things. We'll, we'll 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 hit some surprises. We'll, we'll find some interesting things that that people couldn't necessarily have predicted beforehand, 
And I don't think we should be too surprised if that's the case. If you look at uh, AI, this is you know this area is full of full of heuristics. Which when you when you can throw a huge amount of computer problems, you see okay, fantastic, it works. But you couldn't necessarily have gone back a, a couple of decades and predicted this. This is proven to work today. So I think that's where stuff gets exciting, and that's why the next few years are going to be great. And and we have a, you know, we we talked about formal definitions of of. Quantum advantage earlier in in our talk, uh, we we have a simpler path at IBM Quantum. So, um, on the hardware side, can we run circuits faster using software and, and classical hardware in in collaboration? And then, what interesting problems can we map to those circuits? Um, so, when I think about the future of of chemistry research, um, as IBM Quantum is focusing on improving the hardware and the software capabilities to to run faster circuits, we we need to work with the domain experts to understand their problems. How can we decompose that problem into its individual parts, and then map map specific uh, parts of the problem to quantum versus classical? Um, and so I, I think this this also ties into what you mentioned, Sam. We're we're still learning what questions can we ask, um, but of course there are those key areas where you know we're really excited. So at IBM, you know, simulating nature, we're very excited uh, at the potential to leverage quantum computing there. So that's that's simulating materials and, and chemistry and drugs. Um, of course, data with complicated structure that ties in very nicely with uh, machine learning. And then there's there's optimization. Um, you know, optimization is obviously an a important area across industry. Uh, but those first two are the ones where we're, you know, we, we think we'll see the first uh, quantum advantage, um, hopefully in the not too distant future. Yeah. And for me, that's the main takeaway of all of this, right? Like, I think what the both of you have been able to provide is a very grounded uh, understanding of where things are and 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 how we're essentially creating something new. But in the space of technology, nothing is actually created new. Everything that gets created is existing technology mixing in different ways and new combinations and new permutations, which creates novelty. And then, of course, you have a plethora of use cases that emerge from there. And, you know, the only thing that I've been very happy about through all the the buzz that's been created recently with artificial intelligence is that that understanding is happening. It's becoming more and more common that people understand this combinatorial effect of technology and how they kind of come together and create something new. Um, and I think with the work that you guys are doing in terms of you know quantum-centric uh, quantum R&D, uh, yeah, you're the edge of the blade, tip of the spear. You know, you've got a front row seat to it. Um, and I thank you both for coming over today uh, to, to to the podcast and giving our audience a bit of a glimpse into this uh, frontier. So Sam and Richard, thank you very much for coming to the show today. Richard, where can people find you and find out more about the work that you're doing at IBM? Yeah, so fi find me on LinkedIn. Um, you, you can check out quantum computing on, on IBM's website. Um, Check out kiskit.org uh, if you're interested in learning more. Uh, we've got lots of free free resources available to start learning quantum computing. Um, we have a YouTube channel, again, with, with lots of education material to get started. Um, so yeah, I think fi final thoughts from my side is 
it, it's easy to get started today um, on, on kisskit.org and IBM Quantum Computing. So uh, get get started, and if you have any questions, come come find me on on LinkedIn. And uh, you know, really thank you, uh, Kerry, for the opportunity to uh, have this this exciting discussion. And uh, you know, look forward to to the next discussion. My pleasure, Richard. And what about you, Sam? Where can people find you and find out more about the work you're doing? So similarly, please reach out on LinkedIn. Uh, just as just as with Richard, but uh, but also we uh, the simple answer is to go to capgemini.com um, slash quantum and you'll find a huge uh, amount about what we're up to, some of our work in life sciences and other other industries, various various talks, um, blogs, and lo- lots of lots of information about um, uh, about how we're engaging with this uh, this exciting technology. Especially the 45 minute video that you made on drug discovery and quantum techniques, which I think should be uh, more widely seen and shared. It's very, very excellent. To those of you who are at home, um, I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. Uh, don't forget to listen back to some of our recent episodes on all things emerging tech. You can find the link to that in the show notes. Uh, and do feel free to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back next week looking at another new and complex challenge and how technology can provide an answer to them. This has been Future Sight, a show from Capture and I Invent. We'll see you soon.